In John chapter 2, well, actually, last week we had a sermon on how Jesus changed the water into wine uh, at the wedding feast at Cana. And we learned that he wasn't just supplying some fine wine for the people there. He was actually teaching us a very profound lesson. He took the water from the jars that were used for purification uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and he changed that water that was used for washing, that kind of washed away people's sins, and he turned that into wine, which of course represents his blood. And he was showing us that uh, the whole way of getting rid of sin is going to change. No longer are you going to wash it away by ceremonial washings, but it's going to be washed away permanently by his shed blood on the cross. That's what the meaning of the, the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana was all about. And now we read about this incident, and again, Jesus teaches us a profound lesson about what his ministry is all about, who he is, and what he came to do. We'll begin reading here in uh, John 2, beginning in verse 12. It says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Notice at this early point in time, Joseph isn't mentioned anymore. Most scholars think that Joseph, his stepfather, had died by this time. So he's traveling only with his mother and his brothers. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, now we know what Passover is all about. It was a feast of Old Testament times, and it uh, celebrated the time in Jewish history when Israel was released from centuries of slavery in Egypt. After striking Egypt with 10 consecutive plagues, we read about that in the book of Exodus. The last plague, of course, was the one being, uh, bringing about the death of the firstborn in every house of Egypt that was not marked with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, so that the death angel passed over that house. And that's where you get the, the term Passover. Uh, the Pharaoh finally relented and set the Israelites free after that plague of the death of the firstborn and the Passover. So in Jesus' day now, the Israelites are still celebrating the Passover and the great miracle that happened in Egypt when they were released from, from slavery. They were physically, it was their physical salvation as a nation at that time. So the Jews are still celebrating this event, and Jesus is there in Jerusalem to participate. Uh, it goes on to say here, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So when the Passover came, it was a time for all Jewish men over the age of 20 to show up, to be there to celebrate, to participate, and uh, it was a time to sacrifice animals. So people coming from different parts, surrounding areas and countries, they didn't bring their own animals, but they wanted a sacrifice, so it was convenient for them to purchase an animal there and to take it to the priest and have it sacrificed. And also, when they came to Jerusalem at this time, it was the custom for, again, Jewish men to, to pay a temple tax. 
And you couldn't pay it with normal money because normal money had images of Roman rulers on it or Roman gods. So at the temple, you couldn't worship God with that kind of money. Now that's not in the Bible. That's a law that the Jews made up. So you had to change your money. You had to get temple money. So when these people came to town at this time, money changers were on hand to convert any and all coins into special temple coins, which were the only kind acceptable for the tax. And while doing this, the money changers kept a certain amount of profit for themselves. Now, I don't think Jesus was overly upset that people were purchasing animals to sacrifice. I don't know how he felt about this exchanging, you know, coins from the Roman Empire to temple coins. But Jesus' anger stemmed from the fact that all of this business was happening in the temple itself, on the temple grounds. And Jesus, in a sense, was saying, listen, my father's house is about knowing and loving and treasuring a person, my father, God the Father. But that focus had been replaced by a focus on trade. It became a flea market that was not promoting worship and communion with his heavenly father. That's what he got upset about. So as we read here, what happened? Verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So it was a complete fiasco. Everything was upturned. Everything was upset. And you can imagine people trying to run out of the way, people confused uh, with all this going on. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So having that that happen, what's going to go on next? His disciples remembered when this happened that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So they thought, oh, okay, what Jesus just did fulfilled the scripture from the Old Testament. Verse 18, then the Jews demanded of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Okay, you've just overturned everything happening here. You've driven people out. You've driven all the animals out and the money changers. What right do you have to do this? What authority could you possibly have that allows you to come in here and change everything that's going on? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, everybody who heard him thought that he was talking about the building itself, that he was going to destroy the temple and somehow rebuild it again in three days. This is a key verse here. Jesus is not talking about the building. He's talking about himself. They were destroying the, the physical temple in a sense that they were destroying the purpose for which it was built. Worshiping God. They turned it into a flea market. Jesus knew that in the not-too-distant future, this literal building was going to be destroyed by the Romans. And it happened in the year 70 A.D. Remember what Jesus said? Hold your place. I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 1. 
It says here, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So when Jesus was talking to these individuals now, he knew that this temple was ultimately going to be destroyed. But yet he talked about a temple that he was going to raise again in three days. So notice he's not talking about the building, he's talking about himself. He's talking about how just as the physical building was going to be destroyed, the Jews were also going to try to destroy him. Now he refers to himself as the temple. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is teaching us something here that's very important. What he's teaching us is he is the new temple of God. This building is insignificant. It's outdated. In fact, it's obsolete. It has become obsolete. Because everything that this building and what goes on here uh, portrayed, Jesus is here to fulfill in the flesh. Jesus is the new temple. Now, the temple was a very serious subject to the Jews. It was the most important place on the face of the earth. They used to say that this temple area here is where God meets man. That's the one spot in the whole world where God meets man. So you can imagine anybody who said anything about destroying the temple or harming it in some way, they would be violently opposed to that. So they thought that Jesus was talking about how he was going to destroy the physical building. And he's not talking about that. He's talking about himself, how they were going to destroy him. And that was by the beating, the torture, the crucifixion that he suffered. Okay. But what Jesus is doing here is he is declaring himself to be the new temple of God. The purification for sin no longer is going to take place through ceremonies that happen, washings and sacrifices in this physical building. Access to God is no longer going to be limited to the high priest entering the Holy of Holies once a year. These things are now going to be accomplished by and through Jesus himself. And that's why he says, destroy this temple, (laughs) his body, He is the new temple of God. All of these things about purification from sin and so on and so forth are going to be accomplished through Jesus himself, the new temple. We can only have access to the Father through Jesus. We don't have a building to go to in Jerusalem where we can come in contact with God. Jesus is the new temple. So how do we come in contact with God the Father? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And that is the only way. That is the only way. That's the only way to worship God the Father. Through Jesus Christ. (laughs) Okay. We can only have access to the Father through him. He is the place where God and humans now meet. Instead of it being a building in Jerusalem, it is now through an individual, Jesus Christ. The physical temple building is now obsolete. And sure enough, some years later, a few decades later, we, we watched a uh, video about that several months ago. The Romans came in 
and destroyed the temple totally. Now, when you look at the, the temple, now that picture we saw was an artist's rendering of what it probably looked like. When you go to Jerusalem today and go to the place where the temple once stood, there's just a flat area, the temple mount area. There's no temple, there's a platform where the temple used to be. Now what happened in that space there is in the 700s AD, the Muslims set up a special mosque. You see a picture of it, it's got a golden dome. It's called uh, the Dome of the Rock because they felt when they controlled that area in the 700s AD, they felt that Muhammad, the one who began the Muslim faith, uh, leapt from, from earth to heaven on his horse from that spot right there. And if you go into that Dome of the Rock, the mosque with the golden dome on top, you go inside there and you know what you find? A big rock. That is the rock that the Muslims believe that Muhammad leapt from on horseback from earth to heaven. So that area today is probably the most controversial area on the face of the earth because three religions, the three main religions of the world have an investment in that property. The Jews feel that's where the temple stood and rightly so. So it's the holiest spot in the world to them. Christians, of course, feel that Jesus Christ died right in that area there. So it's one of the most sacred sites to them. And the Muslims feel that that is the site very special to Muhammad. So when you go to Jerusalem and come anywhere near that, all you see is soldiers with loaded guns. They don't want anybody going on that property. Nobody is allowed to because they fear that somebody is going to start some sort of a riot or a rebellion or an uprising, and they don't want any of that to happen in that area. So it's kind of a shame because that is a spot that the Bible talks about continually. <laughs> you know, as far as the Jews in the Old Testament are concerned, Jesus in the New Testament, a very sacred site. But God allowed the Romans to come in there and completely remove that edifice, completely destroy it and burn it to the ground. And it, it was done in order to show us that that is obsolete. You want to find God? You go to Jesus Christ. <laughs> he is the means by which we worship God. Let's turn to Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, and see what the author of Hebrews said about this. Uh, this transition from the temple and the Old Testament law to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, says this. The law, everything having to do with the Old Testament, the temple, the priesthood, all of that, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. And the good things are Jesus. Not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, the Old Testament way of worshiping, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. And that's what they did at the temple. Every day there were sacrifices. Every special festival or, or holy day. Verse 2, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty 
for their sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, all those sacrifices that happened at the temple, all those thousands upon ten thousands of animals that were sacrificed, that only looked forward to the one sacrifice that would truly be able to forgive sins, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So those sacrifices are annual reminders of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me, a body that would be sacrificed on the cross. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased, he's saying to his father. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first the old covenant, to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The temple is obsolete. It could never accomplish what the people thought it could for them. It could never once and for all take away sin and forgive sin. But Jesus came to do just that. And it's only his blood, which is so much important than any animal's blood, because those things, everything having to do with the temple was just a shadow of what was to come, that Jesus would fulfill himself once for all. Now let's turn to Colossians 2 and verse 16. Colossians 2 verse 16. And notice what Paul says about the same subject here. Therefore, he's talking about what do we do now? What the Old Testament holy days and festivals and, well, you can keep them if you want to, but you're not commanded any longer because those things don't really apply to us as Christians. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, Jesus Christ. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So Jesus came into the temple. He cleared out all the rigmarole that was going on in there. And he said, destroy this temple, referring to himself. And in three days, I'll raise it up. And he did just that. He did that. When he went to the cross, he died, and what happened? He rose from the dead. Give thanks to God, because it means our salvation. So this radical departure away from the focus on the temple, and it, you know what still goes on in Jerusalem today? That is the holiest place to them on the face of the earth. That temple wall, just a foundation wall of the temple itself, that's all that's left, but you need to be very careful if you ever go there. You need to treat it with respect. You need to not do anything crazy or out of line. You have to take into consideration these people worshiping there because that to them is the holiest place. That's how they come close to God, by coming close to where that building used to be. And that's the closest that they can come to it, that wailing wall. 
But we understand that that's not, it's, it's obsolete. It's not important anymore. We have direct access to God the Father through Jesus, his son. So it's a radical departure that Jesus was teaching there. The radical departure away from the focus on the temple building will be met with violence against Jesus. And it did. Remember when Jesus was arrested and he was standing before the authorities, some wise guy in the back says, oh yeah, I remember him saying that he's going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. That was part of the reason why he went to the cross in the eyes of the Jews. But the only sign that Jesus would show them was his resurrection from the dead. And you know what? When that happened, they didn't believe that. That was going to be the only sign he was going to give, that he had the authority to make that change, out with the old, in with the new. The temple is obsolete. I am now the temple of God. Amen. Herod the Great was the one who actually did the building, most of the building of this temple. Back here to John chapter 2. After Jesus said that, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? Well, Herod, Herod the Great had been involved in renovating the temple. And uh, he had been at it for 46 years. Uh, and it was going to continue on even after this. His renovation of the temple wasn't completed until shortly before the Romans arrived. Reading on here, they said, It's been 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In John chapter 4, just a, a page or two past that, remember the conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman? Now, the Samaritans, uh, to them, the holiest place was Mount Gerizim. To the Jews, the holiest place was the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And notice this part of this conversation here. John 4, verse 19, Sir, the woman said, the Samaritan woman speaking to Jesus, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. They were at Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now notice what Jesus says here. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem. So Jesus knew that this change was going to take place. This is why he came. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. So it's not in the future. Jesus said, this is why I'm here. I'm bringing this change right now. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So worship of God is not going to be limited to any mountain anywhere in the world. Not Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim. You're going to worship Jesus. And he is going to be your gateway. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way. The way to the Father. The way to eternal life. 
It, it all comes through me. Jesus is the new temple. He's the new Passover. When we follow Jesus, the death penalty, just as the, the death angel passed over the Israelites in Egypt because they put blood on the doorpost that night, the death penalty passes over us as Christians today because we are marked with the blood of Jesus Christ. When we accept him as our personal savior, when we follow him, the Bible teaches that in a sense, we're sprinkled with that blood. Just as the Israelites put the blood on the doorpost, the death angel saw that and passed over their house, Jesus is the new Passover because those marked by his blood, those who recognize Jesus' death on the cross as the sacrifice that pays the penalty for our sins, the death penalty passes over us. He changed how worship and sacrifice were to be understood. And finally, here in John 2, it says, verse 23, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Now, verse 24, it's the same word in the previous verse, 23, believed. So in a sense, what the scripture is saying, many people believed him because of the signs he was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus did not believe them. In fact, he didn't believe that they were truly converted to him, that they were truly going to be followers of him. They just enjoyed seeing signs and miracles. It was like a sideshow for them. It titillated them, you know, it got them all excited. But Jesus, verse 24, did not believe in them for he knew all men. He knows human nature. <laughs> and he knows they were just there to see the miracles and to see the signs. They weren't truly, sincerely going to follow him. He knew human nature and knew that their faith wasn't real. So Jesus is the new temple. The Jews don't believe that because they still worship at that wall, the last remnant of the temple that stood there. They pray there, they offer up their, uh, their uh, you know, uh, best wishes and sincere thoughts and requests. That's, that's where they go to find God, still at a building. We know better than that. We know that we pray, we come through Jesus to reach the Father. And one final scripture, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. I think we all believe now and understand Jesus is the new temple. We don't go to a physical building anymore. He is the one through whom we get to the Father. He opened the door for us. So now we have direct access to the Father. But notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. By having Jesus, the new temple, dwell in us, we become what? We become temples ourselves. Because the new temple, Jesus Christ, dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. It says here, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So we are places where God dwells. 
Just as in the Old Testament, it was that one building in one city, on top of that temple mount stood an edifice where God dwelt, and the people came there to meet God. But now, Jesus Christ, the new temple, dwells in us, the believers, we who have accepted Jesus as our uh, Passover, our uh, atonement for sin, by him dwelling in us, we now are also temples of God. And that is his dwelling place for all eternity. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. We are in relationship with him, a relationship that will go on forever. And a relationship that we will enjoy for all eternity. Because the more time we have, the deeper we will come to know God. And the more we will appreciate him and, and learn about him. So I don't know about you, but that's a fantastically encouraging thing to know that this calling that we have and this belief that we have is not just for here and now, but it's going to go on forever, and it's just going to get better all the time. So Jesus came on the scene in his earthly ministry with a bang. I mean a bang. And he started changing things radically. Of course, it met with a lot of opposition, so much opposition that he was eventually murdered for what he taught. But we understand now. We're able to look back with the help of the Holy Spirit to see what all these things mean. Amen. So thanks be to God that he is our new temple and that by him dwelling in us, we are also temples of God through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's profound. The more we read, the deeper we go, the more we come to understand, understand and appreciate. So thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to this earth. Thank you for his earthly ministry. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being steadfast and determined to the point that you eventually went to the cross. But it was for us that you did that. It was for a death penalty that you paid on our behalf. And we will thank you eternally for that. We can now be saved by grace because you did all the things that you did for each and every one of us. You did them for the whole world. We just pray that more and more people will come to understand and accept this truth and look to you as their savior as we do now. So Father, we thank you for the wonderful calling you've given us. We thank you for your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you that you have given us a wonderful high priest who doesn't offer up animals for us. He offered himself once for all. And we'll thank you eternally for that, Father. We praise you. We worship you. We love you. And we pray this all now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.